imagine someone has a gun to your head. They say you have to drive for 24 hours straight without falling asleep. Otherwise, I'm going to pull the trigger. Put this CEO that you're talking to in the passenger seat. Are they interesting and compelling enough to keep you awake for 24 hours or not? And if they can, yeah, they, they pass that bar. All right. What's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work. I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me, and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right. So, Joey, you are one of the chief investment officers at Pantera. Uh, that's the largest crypto hedge fund in the world, I believe. And you're also an urban investor, I believe, which is not really well known. Uh, so I want to learn a little bit more about that. A lot of people in my audience are really into urban, something I've become very um, passionate about recently. So we'll talk about all these different things. But I want to start off with um, asking you about the Teal Fellowship, because I think you were also a Teal Fellow, if I understand correctly. And it looks like it worked out quite, pretty well for you, right? Uh, should we pay more kids to drop out of college, do you think? Or if not, why not? What's the what's the constraint on on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like, uh, you know, probably more than we do today. I, th I think if you look at the, the Teal Fellowship, um, I remember... I remember a few years ago, like they had like something like 7,000 people apply. And, and I think like, you know, when I got it, um, there, there are fewer people interested. So more and more people are interested in it. Um, you know, I think, but I think like one thing that I've noticed is a lot of people that, that get the Teal Fellowship, a lot of them have, you know, already dropped out. Um, you know, the, often people reach out to me and ask, you know, like, hey, I want to talk to you for like 15 minutes, get your view on whether I should drop out of college or not. Um, and I'm happy to do it, you know, take 15 minutes, whatever, it's fine. I've never seen one of those people ever drop out. Um, <laughs> because people who drop out, they don't need to ask you, you know, your advice on whether they should drop out or not. They just do it. Um, but yeah. Okay. Interesting. So it sounds like you're saying maybe the Teal Fellowship is somewhat overrated as a mechanism for moving talent from university to the outside because it's mostly just capitalizing on people who are already, uh, drifting towards the outside anyway. Well, no, I mean, I'd say, I would say like the Teal Fellowship is, is I think the reason why a lot of people think it's like okay to drop out. Um, it definitely kind of, I mean, you obviously had people in Silicon Valley who did it years ago, like, um, you know, Steve Jobs, Zuckerberg, et cetera. Um, but then, you know, with the Teal Fellowship, I think it made it even more mainstream, like this idea of dropping out is it's like a thing you can do and it's okay. Like I remember when I first dropped out, um, you know, and I'd be on a flight or something and people back before COVID, people used to talk to you, right? And people would ask, you know, you know, people would ask like if I was in school and I'd say, you know, no, I dropped out. And they'd always say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, you know, like, like thinking you must be a failure because you dropped out. And I noticed that like, you know, kind of as the fellowship got more popular, that sort of sentiment changed. Um, and, you know, eventually when you tell people you dropped out, even if they don't know anything about what you do, they'd say, oh, you must be really successful. I think that's because of the the Teal Fellowship. I think that kind of societal shift definitely they push that along. Okay, fascinating. And in your case, did the financial incentive of the fellowship uh, move the needle for you in your decision, or you were going to do it anyway? Um, it was definitely helpful because I mean, you know, in the in the early days, like when I was in San Francisco, I didn't have that much capital. Like you know, when when I started off, I was living like in the basement with like you know six or seven people in a three bedroom basement. Uh, luckily, I I got one of the bedrooms because I was the person who found the place. But there are people who slept on like air mattresses on the floor and stuff. Um, so you know, it was it was helpful for sure. And do you think there's anything about the psychology of of the dropping out that affects the performance of you know whether it's founders or people going on to do anything else? Does it? Uh, are, are there just from someone who's done it before? I'm curious if there's any kind of inside observations that might surprise people. Like, do you think it makes people more uh, enthusiastic, more committed, more more disciplined in a positive way? Does it create a certain kind of sunk cost uh, sensibility, perhaps extra anxiety? What, what, are there any kind of hidden pros or cons that uh, you noticed in your experience that other people might not think about? Yeah, I think the only one I would I would say that I've noticed is. Um, 
it definitely makes you feel like you kind of constantly have to be learning. Um, because like, I don't know, I, I, I always find myself educating myself about really random things. Um, mostly because I feel like, well, I didn't, I didn't learn that in university because I, I only went for a year. Um, and, and it's like so pathological to the point where like, I certainly learned many times over whatever I would have learned in university if I had not dropped out. Um, but, but I still imagine that kind of mentality is like, like I'm sure other dropouts, uh, have a similar kind of, you know, mentality there. Okay. That's cool. That is, that is interesting. It sounds like the insecurity one might feel from, uh, perhaps seeming less educated actually makes you get more educated than anyone would have otherwise had they stayed in, in university. So that's, that's fascinating. That's, thanks for sharing that. Uh, some interesting food for thought here for, for people in my audience who are maybe in university right now. So, all right. So, um, the main reason I wanted to get you on the show is to talk about Urbit. So on the Pantera website, the portfolio includes Urbit and, um, no, for some reason, which we don't fully understand nowadays, a, a lot of the people who are invested in Urbit, for whatever reason, seem to not quite talk about it as, as much as maybe they talk about some other portfolio companies. For those, for those of us who are really bullish on Urbit and really involved in the Urbit ecosystem, we always find this kind of surprising and, and, and we're kind of trying to um, you know figure out what's going on here. So let's, let's just start from the beginning. So I want to know, I'm curious, how did Urbit first cross your desk? Uh, Galen told me that there's a good story here. I don't know if you if you recall what he might be referring to, but he had, he told me to just ask you for the story. He said it might be interesting or funny to have you tell it. So how, how did it first cross your desk? And uh, I'm going to try to kind of warm up into how you think about Urbit as an investment. But um, yeah, tell us the story about how it first crossed your desk. I remember. So the way I first heard about Urbit was, was through like a friend. Um, and I ended up meeting this guy, uh, Henry Alt, um, who was at Urbit at the time. He was the only, he was the only non-technical employee at the time and was kind of working on writing a lot of like documentation and, and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, met him a few times, talked about Urbit a bit, thought it was interesting. Um, and then kind of, maybe I'd say a number of months later, uh, you know, he reached out and was like, Hey, like, you know, at Urbit, we're thinking of like doing a sort of like crowdfunding campaign, uh, you know, that kind of like accepts crypto and, and we're like selling like land and stuff. And um, I had done one of the ones prior to that. I did one for a project called Augur, which is kind of how I got into the crypto space. And, you know, he was like, you know, there's really only a handful of people who've done this, want to get your advice on like how we should do it. And so I ended up becoming an advisor to Urbit um, and then, you know, kind of met met uh curtis at the time and the rest of the team um so, so that was kind of my introduction to urbit was like they wanted some advice on like how to how to like intersect with the crypto ecosystem um like how crypto companies and projects could potentially use urbit and then also like for like how to think about like you know basically selling urbit address space okay great background there so so what was your first uh, perspective on Urbit. How did you think about this from an investment perspective? Um, take me back to that time when you're thinking about the pros and cons, the potential value of this of this project. Just through what lenses were you thinking about it from that perspective? Yeah. So from an investor standpoint, um, you know, I see that that ended up happening a couple, maybe two or three years later. Um, prior to then, I just and kind of your initial time. So your initial story. Sorry, that was around 2016. Was that right? Or yep. earlier than that? So, you, so it's only a few years. Got it. So when did you officially decide to invest? That I think was in 20, either like late 2017 or early 2018, something like that uh, through Pantera. Okay, great. Just getting the, getting the story down. So go on then. How did you think about it when you saw it as something investable? Yeah. So um, basically... I remember that, you know, people, there were some people we heard interested in selling some galaxies. Um, There's one or two from like an individual and then um, some from like the, you know, Tlon uh, themselves. Um, and we ended up buying, I forget the exact number, but it's, you know, it's a few, basically it's like somewhere like two or three, something like that. Um, and the thinking behind it was basically, you know, if Urbit gets adoption at some point in the future, um, this should be like quite valuable. Uh, it's sort of like, like you might think of it like owning, you know, part of the domain space of, of the internet or something. And, you know, we were like, we don't need to own that much of it um, in, in order for, for us to get like really high, high EV upside if it does end up working out. 
And the flip side of that is that you don't have to invest that much capital to do it. So it's a great sort of investment because like, um, you know, your upside's really high. Um, you know, your downside is probably fairly correlated to the crypto market was kind of our thesis. You know, if you look at urban galaxy prices over the counter, they kind of fluctuate with crypto. When crypto is really high, they go up. When crypto is down, they go down. Um, and so that was sort of how we thought about it from an investment standpoint. Okay, interesting. So I want to unpack that a little bit. But when Galen told me that there's a interesting or funny or good story around you first meeting Galen and interacting with Urbit, uh, do you know what he might be talking about? Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure off the top of my head. Did, yeah, did it's he okay. You no, or... you, you you don't have to. Um, I mean, I what about Curtis? Can, like Curtis. Well, no, I don't know it. He he was being coy. He told me to ask you, but um, here we are. So, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm thinking about Curtis. Curtis has obviously always been a kind of contra- controversial figure. Um, what did you make of Curtis as a founder uh, or an inventor or however you want to think about it at that time back in around 2016? Yeah, well, I, I'm trying to think of the funny thing. The funny thing might have been, I do think at one point when I first heard about it, um, when like Henry first described it to me, I think I might've said this is either like, you know, really cool or it's completely bullshit. <laughs> um, I might've said something like that. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, if it wasn't that, then yeah, it would probably be some random interaction with Curtis. Um, what did I think of Curtis? I think the first time I met Curtis was at like some random coffee shop in San Francisco. Um, and, you know, we, we were kind of just talking about like random non-urbit stuff. Like we were talking about like, uh, Ethereum and smart contracts and stuff. Um, I don't even know if I'd heard of Moldbug at the, at that point. Um, all I remember is that Henry sent me a link to like a Moldbug post about Bitcoin and how Curtis was, was thought it was going to be worthless. Um, and so I do, I, I do remember, <laughs> yeah, I remember eventually like at a, at a future time we met being like, well, I don't really care, you know, about Bitcoin that much anyways. Um, I'm very bullish on Ethereum. And I was like, you should take that seriously. Um, and, and so we kind of started talking about ETH and, and smart contracts and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then that's kind of how like um, we, I ended up kind of falling down, down the rabbit hole of like interesting ways you could use Urbit, um, you know, whether it's for like decentralized data storage, uh, if you have like certain like data that you kind of have associated with your like crypto wallet. Uh, that was like some use cases we threw around at the time. Although I think these days it's kind of it's kind of migrated more towards the MVP. It's like this sort of like decentralized uh, kind of like chat system, uh, which I think is smart. But yeah, that's 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 all I remember from from the early days. Okay, cool, cool. Just trying to catch up on that background. So I'm curious when you first decided that this was um, a good investment. It sounded like you said you you evaluated that if this were to gain adoption, it would be pretty massive. But you must have also saw some kind of non-zero probability of it gaining adoption. So I'm curious you know, how, how you thought through those prospects of adoption, you know, if, if you thought it had no chance of gaining adoption, it, it would have no, you know, expected value, right? So you must have thought, oh, okay, maybe I could gain adoption this way or that way. How, I'm curious when you first kind of came across it, what did you see as the, the, the market pull? Like what were the use cases or the adoption dynamics that you, you at that time could feasibly um, expect could possibly happen. I'm just curious, like how you thought that through at the beginning, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about the current uh, situation because obviously things looked and felt much different back then. That was before like these big popularization waves in crypto, right? So at that time, I'm just how did you think about the prospects for adoption? Yeah, so the way the way we thought about it was a couple things. Um, one one was that like you know from a technical standpoint, it's very appealing this idea that you have like a fairly clean slate stack that that kind of like you know, if you, I think the analogy Curtis used when I first met him was like, if, 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 you know, people on Mars design software, how would they use it? Or maybe that's something Paul Graham said about, um, you know, uh, Lisp, but either way, I think it applies here. Um, and, you know, so that, that was very appealing. Um, and then the kind of like actual concrete use cases though, that, that I thought were potential ones were, you know, again, this is like years ago. Um, but, you know, thinking about things like, as a crypto user, especially with interacting with like smart contracts on Ethereum, there's certain metadata that you want, like to kind of like follow you with your wallet that like for the DAP, for the decentralized application, it's like pretty expensive for them to get that data every time you load the web page. Um, and if you could kind of just shove that somewhere where like as a user, you know, you trust yourself, like the data that you've shoved somewhere, 
um, and you can put it in like some sort of like you know network where it's kind of replicated. Um, this is like before the days of Filecoin, you know, even was a thing. Um, thought about using the Urbit potentially for that. Um, nowadays, the DAP landscape has played out a little bit differently. Like uh, DAPs are so much simpler than than kind of the stuff I was working on back in the day. That like most of them don't even have that much historical state or data that you need. Although that's starting to change. They're starting to get more complex. The second big use case that that um, I thought of at the time was like, you know, sort of like, you know, kind of like hosting content in a way that was like pretty hard to censor. Um, so like with Augur, you know, there's this concept like the Augur UI. Um, and we never, as a team that built it, we, we never actually hosted the UI ourselves um, because depending on what jurisdiction you're hosting it in, you can expose yourself to a certain legal risk. And so, um, you know, but, but if you had something like Urbit, people could like host their own instances of it or they could provide instances for other people to access. Um, you know, those are kind of the things you're throwing out. Like Urban didn't even have a UI back then, right? It was literally just command line uh, piece of software. Right. Okay. Fascinating. And so as Urban has evolved since then, and now it does have a UI, and now there are at least some, there, there's some non-trivial user growth. And of course, the the crypto industry has changed and, and grown uh, massively uh, and changed in different ways, right? So do, is your perspective on Urbit changed at all? Um, is, is Has anything updated in how you see the prospects for Urbit? Or perhaps it's, you know, um, or per, perhaps you've become bearish or you think there are, you know, fatal, fatal uh, issues or competitors that make Urbit's prospects for success much less likely? Just curious what's changed at all, if anything, on how you think about Urbit and it's it's both its positives and negatives. Yeah, I think I think competitor-wise, it's it's one of those things that has like a pretty um, pretty clean slate uh, in terms of like competition. Like it's it's not, you know, if it's something that if it fails, it won't really be in my opinion due to competition. It'll just be like you know, it never found sizable product market fit for for random idiosyncratic reasons. Um, and so I'm not worried about the competition side. I think the the bigger challenge with Urbit kind of has always been um, it's a daunting project. Um, and in the early days, especially there was like no abstraction, um, like, like in the sense that like, you know, you, like if you looked at the Urbit docs, um, and you read it, like, like, and, and say you just read it straight, like the way you'd read like a fiction book or something like, like you would think you were transported to like another dimension or something, right? Like, like, like it, there's always like really short variable names that, that sound, you know, like kind of, kind of random, um. It's very like opaque and hard to understand. And I think as that's evolved, you know, especially with like Galen kind of um, running point on things, I think he's brought this sort of, you know, approach with making things easier to understand, um, you know, making them kind of more abstract in a way where you, you get the core ethos and the core message, but it's not like as complicated as it used to be. I still think, you know, if you look at like ways Urban could fail, it's still probably 10 times too more complicated than it should be. And four years ago, it was a hundred times more complicated or even a thousand, you know, so a lot of progress has been made, but it's still one more order of magnitude to go, I think. Um, and, and then, so I think that's like one level, it's like from the end user standpoint, still a bit hard to use. And then uh, for like the average user, and then from a developer standpoint, I think like, um, I guess the thing I would say is just like, I don't I mean, I don't really write that much software anymore, but back when I used to, you know, developers are lazy. Like, like, like in a, in a good way, right? Like, like the whole point of writing software is to automate things. You don't have to do them manually in your life. Um, and, uh, so developers love abstraction, uh, and so making it kind of easier for people to build on top of and, and write apps and stuff on top of Urbit, I think it's kind of the other area where like, you know, if it fails, it's probably one of those two high level reasons, like either it's too hard for the end user to understand or too hard for people to build on top of it. Um, that, that, that would be kind of like the fair case, I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I think those are all uh, very reasonable concerns. Crunchbase says that you've been an, an advisor to Klon, uh, which is of course the company that created Urbit since 2016. So has that been generally your strategic uh, input, your your advice to Klon to, to focus on those aspects? And that's that's been your view throughout? Yeah, that, that, that's sort of been my view throughout. And I think they've, they've done a lot of a lot of work, you know, improving, improving that. Like, like for the same reasons that like, you know, Urbit's been around a long time too, right? Like you think about like, you know, like the Unix kernel or the Linux kernel or something. Um, and like, not really, not that many people cared about those like in the early days, like when Linux was posting on the forums and stuff. Um, 
but like if it had had a following, you know, that was kind of like more meaningful in the early days, I think people would have like spouted the same criticisms a lot, a lot more. Uh, and maybe they did. I don't know. I wasn't around back then. Um, but I think like you kind of have a similar problem, which is like, you know, you have this core, core base level of stuff. It's like, you know, both like basic, but also complicated in the sense that it's like simple, like, like you can fit a lot of it on a t-shirt. Um, but at the same time, like what goes into understanding what's on that t-shirt is really complicated and takes a lot of work. Um, and I think it's just taken time to kind of build on top of that in a way where, you know, you're, you're at a higher level of abstraction. And I think they're, you know, again, 10 to a hundred times more abstract in a good way than it, than it was back in 2016. And there's probably another order of magnitude to go. Um, and I, and I do think they'll eventually get to a point where it's like easy enough to build on and easy enough to understand that then the biggest risk to orbit won't be, you know, is it too complicated, but rather it'll, it'll just be, is there market demand? Um, and I think we haven't gotten to that easy use point to, to be able to test that part yet. That's kind of the final, I think, question. Okay, cool. Makes sense. Yeah. And so right now, I would say the narrative that is emerging most strongly within the urban ecosystem is the idea of Urbit as basically the Web3 Discord, right? So you're familiar probably with all of the, you know, um, undesirable kind of duct taped qualities of of the tooling that a lot of people use for various DAOs and things of this nature. And a lot of people who are most, you know, the highest conviction believers in Urbit right now seem to all agree that Urbit is in this very unique position right now to possibly be this seamless integrated execution environment where real people can log on to Urbit and be able to move around and manipulate uh, crypto in all kinds of different ways with uh, complete, you know, turn complete computation uh, mixed mixed in. And and the belief in Urbit world is basically that this is just, uh, if Urbit can do this um, and create this seamless environment where people can manipulate crypto and applications as well in, in one seamless execution environment, that this, this is like uh, Urbit's ticket. Like this is Urbit's window of opportunity to um, like really melt faces and what it can do for people uh, in the world. Um, is that something that you see as well? Do you agree or disagree? Would you make any qualifications to that kind of emerging narrative? Are you bullish on that narrative or are you skeptical of that? Yeah, it's good. It's a good uh, set of questions to like chew on. So I, so I think like the, um, the better discord, like web three discord, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, and it's also something that's needed. Um, you know, I've used discord a lot, but, but there's a bunch of different kind of like issues with it. It's not really built for what people are using it for in the web three space. Um, it's more, you know, designed and built for gamers, uh, and it works well for that, but it, but it's kind of, it falls apart at a certain scale, um, on the web three side. So I think that narrative makes a bunch of sense. I think the the part of like kind of like this like you know app wallet kind of money ecosystem piece, you know, where you have all this stuff interacting, is is the harder part to do. I think you you kind of need the decentralized Discord piece first, and you get that traction there, and then like and then like once you have that, then you have like a chance of doing the second piece. The second piece I think is harder um, for a couple of reasons. One is that you have like for some reason. Um, MetaMask has been like really entrenched as like the main kind of like wallet and stuff that people use. Um, and, you know, what's weird about that is the UX is kind of, um, kind of akin to like the old school, like AOL UX, um, which, which I don't really know too much about because I was pretty young back then, but I do remember messing around with it a handful of times when I was like, you know, five and, and like, it was just a bad UX. Um, even at the time, I remember it being clunky. And and on MetaMask, like, it's decent, but it doesn't feel like the end state UI UX for interacting with crypto stuff. And so if you take that assumption, you buy it, um, then there is this open market opportunity for kind of what you're talking about. Um, I think the biggest question mark in my mind is just like, what does it look like from the UI UX standpoint? And people have tried a bunch of different things, right? Like, People have tried wallets where it's like stored in a very secure way via like an HSM on Amazon and, and it has like two-factor auth around it and it's just a simple username and password. People don't use those for some reason. Um, people have tried, you know, like desktop apps. Um, people don't use those for obvious reasons. It's just clunky and annoying. Um, for whatever reason, the, the browser extension wallet is kind of stuck. Um, but I don't think it's the the end state UX. And so I do think that market opportunity is open, but... 
I have no idea like what what the winning UX looks like here. It's just more more that I would bet you know against the browser extension model being the the final one. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. You don't have any hunches as to like what is the the missing ingredient in that in that in that game in that race or like what would be the you know the the fatal blow that would prevent Urbit from winning that that game or like the the key ingredient that would maybe increase the probability of it clinching that you don't you don't necessarily have any hunches on either of those. Well, I think I think on on those specific questions, I think um you know, one one thing I would think through is like it's almost, um, and there's probably tons of good analogies of this in business, but I'm drawing a blank on what would be a good one. But like one way to maybe win is like you make something that's basically a browser extension wallet that's better than MetaMask for some like, you know, one or two key reasons. And then like that has like a thing where, you know, you click a button on it and it, and it opens you up and, into like whatever the actual in-state UX is. And the way you hook people is by having a better browser wallet, but really you're trying to transfer them over to this other thing. Um, I guess like maybe you could use Netflix as an analogy, right? Like, like, you know, they had all these DVDs um, and, and, you know, eventually they would um, eventually they switched over to the streaming model and, and kind of most of their customers migrated and they opened up to this huge new customer base. Like maybe there's some, some analogy there. Um, and then as far as what would block them from, from succeeding, I think um, the only thing I can think of is that like crypto changes a lot and and so like from like a infra standpoint, I'm actually kind of out of date on the latest of like how hard it is to like update Urbit. I remember in the old days, it used to be really difficult. Um, but, but that would be uh, another thing. It's like, you know, you have to make updates pretty frequently in crypto stuff. Um, otherwise, like your, your users will get mad. So be like, well, I can't use this thing because, you know, this company updated that thing. And now my app's out of date and, and stuff like that. Um, I'm actually curious, what's your, what is the latest on that? Do you know? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, I think uh, significant improvements have been made on that front probably since the last time you, you looked into it very deeply because, um, yeah, it's now relatively smooth, like the over-the-air updates that they do. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. I'm, I'm like a big urban bull, but just being perfectly frank and honest, it, it definitely still, there are a lot of kinks still to be ironed out, just being perfectly frank. But um, I do know that it's substantially better now than it was a few years ago. So, and now I, I'm sure you know that there's now app distribution on the network, which is probably the most radical and interesting and exciting thing that's happened in the past year. It was only last October that um, you can now build an Urbit app, ship it to the network, uh, and anyone else can download and use that Urbit app uh, in this purely peer to peer way. Um, and so, yeah, that's all working and smooth. And so, and that app developers can ship updates to each app and that automatically goes out over the air um, automatically. So, and, that, and that's working, that's all already working. And, and you see that, you know, there's new apps and new updates within the apps every every week now. So, so but it's a great point and, and, and I think you're absolutely right. So I wanna ask you about a few different other interesting things that you know about and that kind of reflect your own experiences and achievements, um, which are manifold. But I think maybe my last question on Urbit, just because it is something that's very interesting to a lot of people in my audience is, just from the investor's perspective, I'm curious how you think about crypto narratives and how Urbit has or has not fit into those narratives. Like, I guess the motivation for this question is that it seems to me like there are a lot of crypto projects with much, much less substance than Urbit that have um, become much more famous, much more popular have gained much more investor interest and excitement than Urbit. Urbit is something that has been built for, you know, they've been building it for 10 years now, uh, way before crypto was cool. There are some really, really interesting and attractive features of its architecture and just um, it's whatever you might say of it, whatever one's critiques of it or, or skepticism of Urbit might be, it's definitely a very real piece of work that's been built uh, over a very long time uh, patiently with with real purpose in mind. And it's so it's much more substantial than many crypto projects, which have gained much more fame and investor interest. What do you think's going on here? Like, why hasn't Urbit kind of really hit its stride in terms of narrative and in terms of just public fame and, and interest and, and market excitement? Why has the Urbit address space not, you know, had its wave or had its moment of extraordinary excitement, given that it's, it, it's, arguably much more substantial than other projects, which got to much higher market caps. Well, so I, I think on that one, um, <laughs> I think there's a relatively straightforward answer on the crypto side. And I think the answer I would give is, if you look at stuff that gets really popular in crypto, um, 
there's kind of like two models. There's, you know, there's like fungible tokens where it's, you know, traded on a centralized exchange, pretty easy to trade. Every token's the same thing. Um, then there's like NFTs, right? And the first one's always easier to, well, not always, but usually easier to reach a higher market cap, uh, just kind of due to, the, due to the market structure. If you look at NFTs, which is kind of like the category, like, you know, Urbit would fit in, you know, in a roundabout way, right? It's not like an art NFT, but it's sort of a, the land is like Urbit address space is kind of like NFTs. Um, most NFTs that have gotten a lot of, you know, high market cap are still almost like, um, fungible and easy to understand in the, in a sense that like you think about like board apes or, or crypto punks or whatever, you know, there's like 10,000 of them in a collection. Um, there's different traits that each of them have, but you know, you can kind of trade them around and, and it's pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of complexity there. It's a picture of a monkey. It's a, it's a picture of like a, you know, a, a, a fixated person. Um, but then you look at Urbit, there's kind of these layers of complexity, right? Like you have galaxies, you have stars, you have planets. Um, and people are like, what do all those things mean? Which of them do I want to own? Um, and then it's like, what venue do, what venue do I go to to, to buy one? Um, people are going to be like, if you think about like crypto punks, right? Like it's pretty simple. Like you just go buy a floor punk and now you have one. Um, think about Urbit, like, you know, it's like, well, you could, you could buy some stars if you want and you have a bunch of money, you could buy a galaxy. Um, you know, what do I use a planet for? Like, there's all these questions that pop into the end consumer's mind. And I think like anytime you have like questions that pop into people's minds, it's harder to, it's harder to like get more traction. And I think like if you look at the regular world, this is true too, right? Like if you ask people like, um, you know, which iPhone to buy, there's like three or four of them. If you ask them like which Android device to buy, well, it's like you can buy one from Samsung, you can buy one from Google, you can buy one from LG. Um, within each of those brands, they also have their own like, you know, sub products and sub models. And so it's just like more complexity is, is harder to have higher market caps, I guess is the short version of that answer. Yeah, no, that, that's a totally sensible hypothesis there. I'm just thinking it through. And I mean, your point about monkey JPEGs being fairly straightforward and intuitive to understand, oh, okay, it's a, it's a picture. It's, a, it's an artistic collector's item. Art goes for, you know, high value sometimes. Okay, that makes sense. It's simple. But on the other hand, the actual the actual value proposition of a monkey JPEG is actually kind of confusing, isn't it? It's like it's not straightforward at all. Like why this monkey JPEG would be worth, you know, a million dollars or something like that, right? It, it's to actually think that through is is pretty complicated. It, it you do have to kind of do some mental gymnastics to to really understand that and to be convinced of that. The way I think about it, and and to just maybe put like a a sharper point on the question is like, you know, the urban address space, which is on NFTs, it's kind of like it has all of the same artistic, you, you can tell yourself the same artistic narratives, like, oh, this is a collector's item as art. But also it has like, real functionality that pretty much no other NFT in the world even comes close to as, as far as I'm aware, in the, in, the, in the sense that this NFT plugs you into like a really functioning peer to peer uh, social networking system that actually functions that you can you can go play with today. Um, and so it's like, I'm, I'm just kind of, yeah, it, it's curious to me and it's always been a big puzzle to me, like why in all of the hype waves and, and hype cycles of, of the past uh, several years, like how Urbit's unique offerings and, and unique differentiators, which are so legitimate and substantial, how that never, like why that never clicked into a particular wave of, of notable public um, like high visibility enthusiasm. Uh, so I see what you're saying, but I, I don't know. I, I, I wonder if it's that simple. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, like, um, I mean, there, there was some hype around Urbit back in 2017 era. The problem back then, though, was that like, um, you could really only trade the stuff like kind of like over the counter. There weren't, there weren't really like any, you know, exchanges to to trade it on. And then I think if, even if you look today, though, um, you know, it's like yeah, you can pull up like Urbit stuff on OpenSea, and people are selling stuff on there, like you know, galaxies and stuff. Um, I think I'm trying to think through like, like, I think like the, the issue is still just like, people don't know, like which thing they should be buying. It's like, and it's like, it sounds stupid, but it's like, it's like the hierarchy of like galaxies, stars, planets. Um, and then like, if you think about something that actually has utility, it's, it's like more work to understand it. Like, like, like for the same reason that like, anyone can kind of say like, well, I'm a gold bug and gold's going to go up or go down, but like, they don't really know, right. They're just kind of making it up. 
with something that actually has like utility, you have to like do a lot more work to understand what you think it's worth. Um, versus like, like, like you can probably come up with like a fair evaluation of like Apple stock. People can disagree around the margins of it. They can disagree upon big global macro things. But if you look at like gold, like you can't really come up with like an exact, you know, precise like value based on a certain set of assumptions. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of still fairly hand wavy and it's something you debate over like the same reason that art is. Um, and I think if you look at something like Urbit, like it, it just makes it harder to value and people don't really know like how to even think about valuing it. And then the last thing I would say is I do think Urbit, you know, land space or address space would probably trade at higher valuations if, if people like, if there was like some sort of like art attached to it. And so like what I mean by is like, like imagine like if your galaxy like looked cool and had a cool image of it, you know, where, where like if someone pulled your galaxy up on OpenSea, it had like a cool image. And imagine like every galaxy had some sort of image associated with it. I mean, they do, but, but they're, but they're kind of like, um, I mean, you can pull them up. Anybody watching can pull them up. Yeah. They're, they're fairly like bland, I guess I would say. And I think if they look cooler, people will probably pay more for them. Um, that's, that's another thing, but it's not really tied to the utility. That's just more like the crypto market. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. Like, I, I think the aesthetic of the sigils are, is really nice and, and interesting. But yeah, because there's so many Urban IDs, they're all just variations on each other, essentially. And so more differentiation in that regard, which is possible, by the way. There are people kind of experimenting with alternative, like, graphic mappings to the identity system. So so it, it is conceivable. There, there's a few different spins on that. But that's an interesting thought. And, and thanks, for, thanks for putting that out there. So, okay, what else? So... Um, you were previously the founder of Augur, which came up briefly in my podcast with Riva Tez. And I've also had on the podcast Robin Hansen, who's who's kind of associated with the idea of prediction markets and the value of prediction markets. So yeah, for listeners, Augur is a decentralized prediction market. And I want to ask you a little bit about how you see this space, because it's, it's always been interesting to me. I know a lot of people in my audience are very uh, into this kind of stuff, but it seems like it, you know, it's decentralized prediction markets are also still waiting for like a real mainstream opportunity. And if you look at betting as a whole, that's a huge market, right? Um, like the DraftKings of the world, th th this is massive, massive industry, gambling in general and, and betting. And so I'm curious, just, you know, how do you think about the bottlenecks facing decentralized prediction and betting markets? Like what, what will be needed for that stuff to really go mainstream and overtake the DraftKings and so on? Yeah, it's good. A good question. Um, I think I think if you look at that the space there, um, there's a lot of things that like centralized entities like DraftKings can do um, to acquire users and to monetize users and to like do a lot a lot of marketing that is really tough to do in a decentralized. It's both tough to do in a decentralized fashion, and then two, it's tough to do um, without there being like more like regulatory clarity, especially in places like the U.S. surrounding like stuff in DeFi and and you know, what rules do apply, what don't, you know, what, what's going to be different, that sort of thing. And so like, that's one issue. And then the other issue I would say is, is on like the, the UI UX side, um, for the people who do bet on like sports on a regular basis, as an example, crypto is still too hard to use for them. And then people within crypto, if they want to speculate on something, they're not looking to make two to three X on a, on a soccer match or a football match, whatever. They, they want to make like a hundred X on some random, like, you know, NFT or, you know, they're, they're buying like some token that's in a DeFi protocol on top of the ETH. Um, so it's this weird, it's in this weird kind of like catch 22 spot, I think. Mm, fair. Are, do you know, are there, are there individuals who spend a lot of time doing things like Augur and who like get wealthy from being good at it? Um, I mean, there are definitely people who, like on, on like some of the bigger historical markets, like, you know, election ones and stuff in the past, there were definitely individual traders who made like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if I remember right. Um, I don't know if they were wealthy before or not, you know, you know, I think like that, since they're pseudonymous, you don't really know that piece, but um, if they weren't, they certainly are now. Yeah. I was just kind of trying to get a sense of like, if you're a really smart person and you are good at forecasting and you're able to do a lot of research, like are is is something like Augur at a state where like if assuming you do have some alpha, can you actually like do it as almost like a career or it's not no one's doing that really? I don't I don't think there's not really people doing that. Um it's it's just like the stuff is too early, I think. It's more right, like people show up just... kind of like 
yeah, like people have shown up for like kind of like one-off events where there's been a lot of coalescing around them. But I think like doing it as like a day-to-day, like a day job thing, like, I don't think that would work yet. Right. But you imagine at some point, just like there are a bunch of, you know, like crypto hedge funds or whatever, like, would you expect at some point there would, there would be like little firms, like research firms that basically could uh, make a steady, a large income just by being more right than average on these betting markets? Or is that not even really in the expectations? I, th- I think that's possible because, because those exist on, on centralized betting markets in the regular world. Um, you know, there's firms, most of them based in the UK or Ireland, where, you know, they're 10, 15 people and they're making markets on, on sporting events and elections and random events, right? Like, um, and those, those firms, that's all they do. So I think, I think it's possible. It's just like, we need more traction on the decentralized side. Right. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, I didn't know that necessarily that existed in the, in the mainstream betting world. So, um, yeah, I, I suspect you would find it in the crypto version uh, at a certain point of development. Interesting. So you said something very interesting and back in 2019 uh, in a talk, you said that crypto has lost its culture. And, you know, I, I think the idea here is that at first, you know, crypto was all about censorship resistance and trust minimization and, you know, the dream of unstoppable applications. And now it, it seems like in different ways, a lot of people have settled with like much less exciting narratives and goals, right? And with with Bitcoin, it's just like digital gold and store of value. And there's a lot of pseudo decentralization and security theater as well that, that people are kind of just surprisingly complacent and, and about and, and willing to settle with. Um, so yeah, and you, you in your talk, you just use the example of even something as simple as hosting on IFPS. Like a lot of crypto companies don't even bother to do their hosting on, uh, you know, decentralized file storage when it's not that much harder to do that. It's, it's like an option that you can do if you if you prefer that way of working. Um, so I'm just curious. I, I think it's a very astute point, and it's something that I think me and a lot of people in my audience uh, share some disappointment with that. Um, so what, in your view, like what are the the most underpriced avenues for? creating and actually like manifesting that more radical crypto culture that that the whole idea was kind of founded on like like what are some examples of things that people could be doing but they're not doing and and maybe they should be doing and maybe even if people push harder in there there would be like like real alpha there and promising you know new avenues for research and experimentation yeah i mean i I think one one thing that's interesting i was actually thinking about that um that like a couple weeks ago very randomly and the reason I thought of it is I forget, I forget what protocol it was, but I, I was playing around with some DeFi protocol and on their website, you know, it was like a little thing that popped up and it said, you know, Hey, you're being redirected to an IPFS, um, you know, version of this. We don't host the protocol, you know, accept or deny. Um, and I, and I kind of smiled because I was like, okay, yeah, you know, there's somebody here who, who like gets it. Um, and I, I think we're seeing more, we're seeing more of that. I think it's, it's, you know, 2019 was definitely, I think, like kind of like a low point for decentralization and like trustlessness in this space. And I think people have kind of like learned some lessons from that. There's still certainly problems. Like if you look at like oracles as an example, a lot of projects use centralized oracles. Um, and I'd say that that kind of reached its worst point in 2020. But even that started to turn around a little bit. Some people are pulling, you know, price seeds from Uniswap now, um, where you can calculate like a historical um it's basically the equivalent of like a time weighted average price or something like that. Um, and so that stuff is starting to improve. Um, what are things projects can do? Or, you know, I think one is just like not, not hosting your own UI, like putting it on IPFS, encouraging people to build multiple clients. Uh, there's one project we invested in called Liquidity that has like open source stuff on GitHub where you can build a UI pretty easily because they actually don't have an official UI. There's like, you know, probably 10 different UIs people have built on top of it. And he asked, you know, why does that matter? And it, it matters because of like censorship. Um, and also like, like censorship can be, you know, like forced to shut something off, but you can also be forced to like change something in a way that's malicious to the user. You can also get hacked. Um, and so like, you know, stuff like IPF hosted UIs actually matters because if the, if the hash of the UI were to change or modified, then like you have confidence that it hasn't been modified versus if you're just going to like some website.com, you know, the UI that they serve you can be different. And in fact, if someone's like hacked their server, they could serve me a different UI than you. And, you know, they could target one of us if they happen to have our IP, right? Like you can do anything like that server side 
Um, and so I think like these things actually matter. And as crypto scales, as DeFi scales, there will be people who lose, you know, very sizable sums of money because they haven't, you know, prioritized uh, these sorts of things. And so I think, I think the space is kind of trending back into a good direction here, but it, you know, certainly it's always a constant process. Right. Okay. Okay. That's interesting for sure. So something I also caught you, you saying on a previous podcast is that, um, you live in Puerto Rico. I think if, if that's correct, if I'm, if you still do, if I got that right. And so something that we talk a lot about on this, on this podcast and kind of in, in my circles more generally is, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about, you know, locations and, uh, jurisdictions and the strategic implications of, of, of these things. Like, um, you know, do you do you think that like do you see crypto as most likely manifesting as a primary, a primarily kind of American? Uh, like, do you think America is going to kind of like own the crypto race, and it's going to be like um, just like you know, kind of America has been the 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 economic engine of the world, really? You know, for for quite some time, it's going to continue being that um, in like the new like crypto economy, or do you do you think that? Um, for different types of strategic, uh, you know, jurisdictional issues and political issues, um, you, you think like the center of gravity of crypto is going to be much more multipolar, international, and like the new, the new like crypto class is going to be this like international class. I'm just kind of curious, um, how you think about these questions of location and your ex and your mental models around how this stuff shakes out. Yeah. And I think like, um, the way I think about it is, well, from a quantitative standpoint, about half of the investments Pantera makes are in the U.S. and half are, you know, overseas. Um, and that's been pretty, fairly constant, I would say, over, you know, at least since I've been at the firm. Um, if you think about traditional VC, uh, obviously it's become more global. But on like the seed stage side, I remember when I was doing like angel deals, you know, back in the day, like that was like I was doing like 90% U.S. and maybe 10% overseas. Um, so I think crypto is, you know, cert certainly more global. Although all VC is more global these days, but I think crypto especially is more global than than other sectors of tech. And but I do think I mean the US obviously has an important role to play. Um, there's a lot of smart developers and engineers in the US. And so I think that's why like half the projects we invest in are US based. Even if they're not US based, almost everyone has some amount of engineering talent located in the US. So the US is certainly like an engine um, you know, as part of this. But it's obviously a bit different, right? Like well, a lot of crypto projects don't actually have like a headquarter office. You know, they, they may have an entity in the U.S. or whatever, but they may employ people there. But it's not like they have like a factory like Tesla does or, you know, a huge campus like Google does, um, you know, even Coinbase, which is probably has, if not the most, one of the most employees in the space. You know, they're, you know, distributed now. Um, and And so I think it's sort of like it's in between the two answers, like, it's certainly not like this thing where like it's like 80% international in the US. It's like some tiny piece. The US is still very sizable, um, but it's not like, you know, 80% dominant either. Um, it's 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 a bit more multipolar, um, I guess is kind of how I would describe it. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Just wanted to kind of gauge your your view on that. It's it's kind of a hot topic among some of my circles because a lot of people are kind of doing the digital nomad thing. And I have I know some people who are like really bullish on El Salvador, but then a lot of people are skeptical of that and that, that kind of thing. So I was just curious if you had any kind of high level view on that. And and so before I let you go, you know, obviously Pantera has been extremely successful. You also have one of the most successful syndicates on AngelList. So I I, I would be remiss to not ask you something about your, you know, your general heuristics when it comes to identifying underpriced value, because you're obviously quite good at it. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you have anything there, you know, you can go in a different direction if you want to, but one question I might be, I might have for you is like, you know, what, is there a single kind of best tell to like a project or a founder or something like you said in some podcasts that you you feel one of your skills and what makes you a good investor is that you're good at synthesizing partial information and making a decision fast. Uh, something you said in one podcast, uh, whereas some people maybe think about things too long and they miss, they miss opportunities. Um, and you're good at going fast and, and synthesizing a limited amount of information. So when you first meet a founder or you first hear about a project, um, what, what, what are the, the tells? What, what are, are there clear, specific, discrete things that make you feel like, this is a winner. I'm down. I'm investing. Or oh no no, this is not. This is a loser. I'm not investing. Uh, what are what are some tells? Yeah, so I mean, it, it obviously depends on the, the role of each of the people you're talking to. But for, for simplicity, I'll just get I'll answer on like the CEO side. You know, so for a CEO, you I I want someone that's like you know 
good amount of energy. Um, the way I would describe it is, you know, use a thought experiment. If, 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 you, if, you, if you're kind of like wavering on like, does this person have a good amount of energy or not? Use a thought experiment. Imagine someone has a gun to your head. They say you have to drive for 24 hours straight without falling asleep. Otherwise, I'm going to pull the trigger. Put this CEO that you're talking to in the passenger seat. Are they interesting and compelling enough to keep you awake for 24 hours or not? And if they can, yeah, they, they pass that bar. Um, I think the second thing is like being kind of relentless about like, you know, bursting through problems, right? Like, you know, good, good founders don't give up when they run into a, an issue or a roadblock. They kind of just, you know, try to solve it. Um, those are the, I'd say the, the two highest indicators that I, that I've seen. And, and when you say have the ability to keep you awake for 24 hours, do you mean because they're so filled with interesting, stimulating ideas, or you're just saying the sheer energy they have to, to, to keep you awake? What are you getting at there exactly? Um, either really like, like, like if, if someone's, uh, if the words someone speaks are so compelling, uh, that they can, you know, speak pretty plainly and keep you awake. That's great. Um, but also like, you just want people who can get things done. Uh, that's what matters at, you know, seed and series A, in my opinion. And so if the way they keep you awake is, is they, you know, force you to stop at gas stations and, and they keep getting buckets of ice water and they slap it on your face once in a while to make sure you stay awake, that works too. Um, you, you know, so I think like it's, it's, it's really just like you want people who, and the reason why you want this, by the way, is as a CEO for early stage company, your job is basically raise money, um, convince people to work at your company who are really talented and smart, you know, kind of set this high level vision and then kind of like point the ship in the right direction and, and rally people to, to start rowing in that direction. And all those things basically are, are a sales problem. Um, some of it involves like product and stuff on the, on the vision side, but um, you really need both. And I guess the one thing I forgot to say is like, you know, you need that, that stuff that I listed. And then like the, the one caveat is like, it can't be BS, right? Like if the, if the vision is, you know, Theranos and it's, and it's like impossible and it's like you know, the equivalent of cold fusion, that doesn't work, um, you know, for, for kind of obvious reasons. Okay. Fascinating. So basically if it's not total bullshit, then it's just a matter of intensity. Basically it sounds like is what you're, is what you're essentially describing. Yeah. At the early stage, I think, I think that's the, the number. If like, if you, you know, there's a lot of things I look at, obviously, but if you had to synthesize it into one factor, it would be like, yeah, intensity. Good founders are intense. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's a fascinating uh, metaphor you use of uh, keeping you awake at night for 24 hours in, in, a, in a drive. I like it. Joey, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, sincerely. Uh, and that's about it. I'm going to let you go to your next meeting. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you to Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show, and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening, and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.